Ask me to read the scripture for this morning. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 19. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, and he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and he is who is the blessed, blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us Richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation from the time to come, for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Thank you, Larry. Church, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get them out at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians. So if you turn in the New Testament, you'll find uh, Galatians and Ephesians. Keep going, and uh, eventually you will get to the book of Philippians. Uh, chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Actually, we're going to start um, in several different New Testament scriptures, but I want you to just to, to hang out there in Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians, because that's where we're going to end up. So Philippians chapter 4 is where we are going to end this sermon, and uh, we'll see lots of things before that, but I want you to be there. Uh, So we are making our way through uh, our sermon series on the seven deadly sins, and we are getting close to the end. Uh, Today we're going to tackle the sin of greed, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, unless there's a baby in my future before next Sunday, if there is, well then we'll not be tackling the sin of gluttony, but if there is not, I will be back next Sunday to finish off the sermon series on gluttony. But today, today we tackle the sin of greed. So Philippians chapter 4. I hope that you're there. Let's pray, and we'll jump right in. So let's pray, church. Father, we pray that you would be among us, that you would be with us, and that you would help us as we fight this uh, deadly sin, which is greed. Father, we confess to you that as American Christians, uh, we have it very good. And we live in a culture where greed is often uh, not only allowed, but celebrated. And we are taught from a childhood that that to be greedy is to be good. Lord, your scripture tells us otherwise. And so we would ask that you would help us to examine our own hearts, to examine our own loves, and that we would be free from the sin of greed, and that truly we would pursue uh, contentment, because godliness with contentment 
is great gain. I pray that we would believe it and that we would live it. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to sh- introduce our sermon this morning with a short two, three minute movie clip uh, from, a, from an old classic movie. Uh, I, I'm not into old classic movies, but uh, maybe you are, and maybe you're familiar with this movie. It's called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's a 1948 classic film uh, whose star is Humphrey Bogart. Probably heard of him, right? The great actor Humphrey Bogart. He plays the part of, of a down-and-out American gold miner. So he's a gold miner, and he hooks up with a, a, an old kind of seasoned veteran prospector, gold prospector, whose name in the movie is Howard. And he hooks up with Howard, he and uh, a crew, some of his partners, and they uh, go deep into the Sierra Madre Mountains, looking for, of course, gold. Now, the clip I want to show you is right before they begin their exposition, before they go out looking for the gold, and Bogart's character overhears the prospector, whose name is Howard, speaking of the danger of of greed, speaking of some of the dangers inherent with with seeking out gold. And and Bogart's character overhears this this kind of conversation, and he pipes in, and he says, that's that's never going to affect me. That's that's never going to overtake me, leading to a key line in the movie where the prospector, Prospector Howard, says these words. He says, I know what gold does to men's souls. I know what gold does to men's souls. Let's watch this clip, two or three minutes worth. Jobs you want a dime a dozen ain't to be had at all. The streets are full of guys pushing each other. Mexico? Why, sure there is. Not ten days from here, the rail pack train is a mountain waiting for the right guy to come along, discover a treasure, and then tickle it, which lets them have it. The question is, are the right guys? <laughs> uh, real bonanzas are few and far between. They take a lot of finding. Say, answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? I don't know, because it's scarce. A thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of the thousand. His find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's uh, 6,000 months or 500 years, scrabbling over mountains, going hungry and thirsty. Now, the gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. Never thought of it just like that. Well, there's no other explanation, mister. Gold itself ain't good for nothing except for making jewelry with gold teeth. <laughs> ah, gold's a devilish sort of a thing anyway. You start out, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied with 25,000 handsome smackers worth of it. So help my Lord and cross my heart. Fine resolution. <laughs> After months of sweating yourself dizzy and growing short on provisions and finding nothing, you finally come down to 15000 and ten. Finally, you say, Lord, let me just find $5,000 worth. and never asked for anything more the rest of my life. $5,000 is a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death would keep you from trying to add 10000 more. Ten, you'd want to get 25, 25, you'd want to get 50, 50, 100, like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. <laughs> It wouldn't be that way with me. I swear it wouldn't. I take only what I set out to get. Even if there's still a half a million dollars worth lying around waiting to be picked up. I've dug in Alaska and Canada and Colorado. I was with the crowd in the British Honduras where it made my fare back home and almost enough over to cure me of the fever I'd caught. Dug in California and Australia, all over the world practically. Yeah, I know what gold does to men's souls. You talk as though you struck it rich sometime or other, Pop. How about it? And what are you doing in here, a down and outer? That's the gold. That's what it makes of us. Never knew a prospector yet that died rich. Make one fortune, sure to blow it in trying to find another. I'm no exception to the rule. <laughs> ah, sure, I'm an odd old bone now, but say, don't you guys think the spirit's gone? I'm all set to shoulder a pickaxe and a shovel any time anybody's willing to share expenses. I'd rather go by myself. Going alone is the best way. 
But you got to have a stomach for loneliness. Some guys go nutty with it. On the other hand, going with a partner, too, is dangerous. Murder's always lurking about. Partners accusing each other of all sorts of crimes. Uh, as long as there's no fine, the noble brotherhood will last. But when the piles of gold begin to grow, that's when the trouble starts. Me, now, I wouldn't mind a little of that kind of trouble. Uh, I think I'll go to sleep and dream about piles of gold getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you believe what that old man who was doing all the talking at the Oso Negro said the other night about gold changing a man's soul so he ain't the same kind of a guy as he was before finding it? Guess it all depends on the man. Well, that's exactly what I say. Gold don't carry any curse with it. It all depends on whether or not the guy who finds it is the right guy. The way I see it, gold can be as much of a blessing as a curse. Hey, uh, Hobbsy. Yeah? Look who's coming out of the Hotel Bristol. That... So, how does the movie end? Well, if, if you haven't seen it, basically, uh, they go deep into the mountains, and uh, Humphrey Bogart's character uh, finds some gold, but he goes against his word. He wants just a little bit more. He wants just a little bit more, and his concern for accumulating more gold turns into paranoia as he begins to think that his, his helpers, his friends, are turning against him and after his gold. And uh, without ruining it, uh, it ends in his own demise, his own despair. I think the key line of the movie is the prospectors. I know what gold does to men's souls. And you know what? We know what gold does. Rather, we know what the love of gold does to our souls as well. One author by the name of uh, Dr. Mathis writes this. He says, deep down, we know greed all too well. It lurks in the hearts of the rich and the poor, in the vilest offender and the professing believer. We may think of it in terms of euphemisms. We may call it by pet names like consumerism or hoarding or extreme couponing or simply saving up for the future, but we feel its intense pull, he writes. We feel its intense pull when contemplating a gift, walking down the store aisles, flipping through a catalog or magazine, passing by a billboard, watching ads pop up online or on TV, and when we consider how much to tip the waitress. He says, it is a nasty weed that has taken root, not only out there in society, but among us, among our acquaintances, but in here, even in our churches, even in our own families, and even in our own hearts. We too know the deceptiveness of greed. And greed, like all sins, is a, is a form of soul sickness. And so what I want to do this morning is, is four things. First of all, I want to define the disease of greed. So simply asking the question, what is greed? Then I'd like to see greed's diagnosis. Greed's diagnosis. What does the Bible have to say about greed? What are some of greed's characteristics so we can find them in our own lives? Number three, I'd like to see greed's prognosis. That is, what are some of the consequences of being in the grips of greed? What may come into our life? Finally, I want to see greed's prescription. That is, how might we overcome the soul sickness of greed? How can we, how can we fight it? So let's begin with definitions, as we always do. Let's define the disease of greed. What is greed? I think we all feel it in our hearts. We, we notice it in other people's lives. 
uh, even in our own lives. But, but what exactly is greed? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this little phrase, but I recall when I was little, um, and maybe even when I was getting into my teenage years, um, that oftentimes after church, uh, my family would go out to eat. So we'd go to church, and I'd look forward to going out to eat, and we'd go to b- various places. But um, one, of the, one of the places we would often go was a buffet. It was just a little uh, kind of small country buffet, and they had fried everything, right? So if you like fried stuff, they had it. Fried corn, fried chicken, fried Snickers. No, they didn't have fried Snickers, but, uh, th- but they might have. They, they would fry anything. So if you wanted any kind of fresh vegetables, not the place to go. If you wanted fried food, it's a great place to go, and I loved fried food. And so we would go, and uh, you know how it is with a buffet. There's this you know, tray after tray and table after table of this delicious food, and you start to get the first item, oh, that chicken looks good, and you keep walking, oh, that piece of turkey looks good, and you just kind of pile your plate, and by the end of it, you've got, if you're like me, um, a, a huge plate of food, and my mom would, would always say these, these, these few words. She would say, Trey, your eyes look bigger than your stomach. Maybe you've said that to your kids before. Trey, your eyes, your eyes look bigger than your stomach. What does she mean? Well, she simply meant that uh, I got more on my plate than I what? Than I needed, right? I got more than I needed. I wanted more than I actually needed. And that's actually a pretty good definition of what greed is. Greed is when our eyes look bigger than our stomachs, so to speak. It's when our desire for more money or for more things or for more experiences exceeds that which we actually need. That is what greed is. And the Bible uh, agrees with that. That's how the Bible speaks of greed. When you look at the Old Testament, you'll find one particular word that I think encompasses the, the idea of greed, and it's the word covetousness. That is to covet something. Well, what is, what is covetousness? When the Bible, in particular in the Old Testament, speaks of, of covetousness, it speaks of craving or a passionate desire to have something that belongs to someone else, right? And so you see your neighbor's wife, you see your neighbor's house, you see your neighbor's donkey, to put it in our terms, you see their boat, right? You see their pool, and you want it. That's the idea of, of covetousness. And, of course, it's one of the, the Big Ten, right? One of the Big Ten commandments found in Exodus twenty seventeen is to not covet, right? To not want something that is not yours. Well, the New Testament counterpart for this Old Testament idea of covetousness is found in the word often translated in our New Testament as simply greed, right? Greedy. To be greedy in the New Testament simply means to have an inordinate desire to have more. You always want more. Regardless of what you have, you always want more. And that's how the Bible speaks of greed. It's having eyes that are bigger than our stomachs. And of course, Christian writers throughout the centuries have commented and given their own definitions. One that I find helpful is Thomas Aquinas. He's a 12th century Catholic theologian and has been very helpful to the church. He calls greed this. He calls it the desire for profit, which knows no limits. It's wanting more and more without any kind of limit. Of course, a modern definition by handy-dandy Webster. Webster defines it this way. He says, greed is selfish and excessive desire for more of something that is needed. So we've seen some definitions from the Bible and from elsewhere. What are, what are some implications of this? Well, I think this helps us. It means that the problem with greed is not particular in the money itself, right? So it's not the money's fault. It's not the car's fault. It's not the possession's fault, right? It's not money or possessions themselves that are the problem. 
But what is the problem? It's our desire for more than what we need. And what that means is that you can be very wealthy and be greedy. And that means you can be very poor and have not very much. And you can still be greedy, right? Whether you have lots or whether you have little, whether you're the prodigal or you're the penny pincher, you can be guilty of greed. You can struggle with greed because it's not the money and it's not the possessions. In fact, one author by the name of Brian Hedges, he puts it this way in summary. He says, the issue is not what you possess, but what possesses you. That's the issue. It's not what you possess. It's what possesses you. So what is greed? We've defined this disease, this soul sickness. It's simply having eyes that are bigger than our stomachs. It's wanting something selfishly. It's wanting things that we just simply don't need, having an insatiable desire for more. So I want to move to the second question. We've, di- we've kind of defined the disease. I want to now diagnose it. What are some of the characteristics that the Bible gives us of greed? Another way to ask it is, how do you know if you are greedy? How do you know if you struggle with the sin of greed? What does the Bible say? I've got about uh, five or six things to, to share with you. The first is that greed, the Bible says, is idolatry. The Bible connects greed with idolatry. That's rather strong language, isn't it? We think of idolatry in terms of statues, right? In terms of pagan poles and shrines. And yet the Bible says that in a very real sense, when we desire more and more things, when we desire more and more stuff, more and more experiences, more and more money, that's actually us bowing down to a false god. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, and notice this, which is idolatry. Paul makes the connection here with Idolatry, between greed and idolatry. And this makes sense. Because when we're greedy, we are essentially making a God out of the experience or the money or the security or the possession that we are seeking rather than God himself. And it makes sense when we look at the language of idolatry in the Bible. We can apply it to greed. We serve money. We sacrifice for that experience. We find comfort in having more stuff. We long for it rather than we long for God. And so first of all, dear friends and brothers, greed is idolatry. Secondly, the Bible describes greed in terms of being insatiable. It's an insatiable desire. Notice what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. One Christian pastor describes greed in this way. He says, greed is like trying to fill up the Grand Canyon with marbles. You just can't do it, right? It's insatiable. One more, one more, one more, one more. Maybe you've heard of the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias tells a story of a, of a Frenchman by the name of uh, Guy de Maupassant. I think I said that right. Ask my wife later. He's a 19th century uh, French writer. And he tells the story of this man and his struggle with greed. Uh, he, uh, of course, was very accomplished and he had much wealth through his stories. He, in fact, was very luxuriant. He had a yacht in the Mediterranean. He had a mansion off the course of, no- of Normandy. But at the pinnacle of his career his mental health began to fade. He tried to even kill himself with a letter opener. It's kind of a tough way to do it. He spent the rest of his life in an asylum, and he died at the young age of 42. And here's what he pinned on his own epitaph. This is what he said. He said, I have coveted everything, 
but I have, te- I have taken pleasure in nothing. I've coveted, I have wanted the world, but I have found pleasure in none of it. And that's what Solomon is saying. Not only is greed idolatry, but it's insatiable. We can never satisfy our desire for greed. Third, it's deceptive. It's not only deceptive, but it's utterly destructive. The passage that Larry read earlier, verses 9 and 10, says this. Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. There's the deception. Greed is a trap, right? It tricks us and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and what? Destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, he says, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Here, greed is portrayed as an animal trap. An animal trap with fresh bait, just waiting to deceive its victims to its own destruction. It's deceptive and it's destructive. The great American evangelist, pastor, spokesperson for Christianity, Billy Graham, he once told a story about the deception and the devastation and and destruction that that greed can bring. He, He said this, he said, a party of tourists once were traveling through Death Valley, and they happened to come across uh, the skeleton of a man who had, had died, drifting on the dunes of the desert. Clutched in his hand was a, a chunk of mica, whose pyrites symbol, uh, resembled gold. And they had utterly deceived him. Graham goes on to say, He had mistaken the yellow streaks in this rock for gold. And on a scrap of paper under the skeleton's hands were written these words, Died rich. Died rich. He says he had thought that he was rich, but he starved to death, lost and alone in a forsaken desert. And Billy Graham ends by saying, such is the deceitfulness of riches. It's idolatry, it's insatiable, it's, it's deceptive and dangerous, and number four, it's a hindrance. We can't read through the Gospels. We can't examine the life of Jesus and his teachings without seriously considering what Jesus has to say about money and about the love of money in particular, uh, which is greed being a hindrance to people coming to place their faith in him. Either because, number one, their faith is in their money, or number two, their love is for their money instead of Jesus. We can think of multiple examples. I just want to share one with you in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, we see Jesus' response. Remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? Comes to Jesus. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And what did he tell him? Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the text says that the young man left disappointed because he had many possessions. Jesus was trying to get at the heart of the issue. He was greedy. It had become an idol to him. And Jesus utters these words in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When we listen to the words and teachings of our Lord Jesus, we have to take seriously his warning that the love of money is a great hindrance to people placing their faith in Jesus and therefore to to having eternal life. It's not only a hindrance, but number five, it excludes people from the kingdom of God. Scriptures tell us that greed, generally speaking, characterizes the life of of the world, the life of the lost, that generally speaking, those who aren't saved 
are marked by greed. And as all sin, apart from the shed blood of Jesus and faith in Christ, all sin, including greed, it excludes us from the kingdom. Paul gives a strong warning to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5.5, he says, For of this you can be sure, you can be sure, no immoral, no impure or greedy person. Such a person is an idolater. There's the connection again. Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of our God. So it excludes the lost. So what does that mean for the church? Well, if greed characterizes the world, then should it characterize the church? Absolutely not. And that's what Paul says, is that it is uncharacteristic, it should be uncharacteristic of those of us who name the name of Christ. Several times he says this, I'll just share one verse, Ephesians 5.3, just a few verses prior. But among you, church, Paul says, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of what? Greed. Or of greed. Because these things, he says, are improper for God's holy people. As the church, historically, I think we say, listen, there should be no sexual immorality, and we raise that to a level, and rightly so. But boy, isn't it easy for us American Christians to say, yes, there should be no sexual immorality in the church, and yet we allow greed to fester in our own hearts and in our own families. Paul says just as strongly that greed, there shouldn't even be a hint of greed in the church. And so we've, we've seen the definition, right? We've seen what greed is. We've seen some diagnosis. What are the characteristics of greed in my life and in your life? And third, what's greed's prognosis? That is, what are the effects? What might come into our life if we are gripped by greed? Well, I want to share just three things the Bible says that can be a result of greed, love of money in our hearts. Number one, this one may surprise you, it's actually loss, financial loss. Proverbs 11:24 and there are others that I could cite says this one person gives freely yet another yet gains even more another withholds unduly but comes to poverty it's fascinating in particular when you read in the proverbs ironically proverbs repeatedly affirms that people who are greedy who love money who are not generous who don't give who want more and more and more actually oftentimes it leads to their poverty the very thing that they're trying to avoid greed leads it to them because no one will help them they didn't help other people no one will help them and so greed brothers and sisters when we pursue it the very thing we're seeking to avoid which is financial loss may actually very well come to pass in our lives. Not only does greed bring loss, but generally speaking, it, just, it, it brings trouble. It brings trouble into our households. Proverbs 15.27 says this, The greedy bring ruin to their own households, but the one who hates a bribe will, will live. So greed... Generally speaking, greed can bring all sorts of trouble into our life. I don't know if you're a country music star or not. Star. I doubt any of you are country music stars. I don't know if you're a country music fan or not. Maybe you have a dream of being a country music star. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're a country music fan or not. I, generally speaking, I don't enjoy country songs, although there are a few that I enjoy. However, I have this line, this country music line that 
somehow popped into my head. It's from the, the star Travis Twitt. I don't know if you've heard of him, know him. He sings a song, and in the song, it just echoes in my mind, and I read this verse, and I thought, oh, that's what Travis Twitt was trying to teach us. He says, I smell T-R-O-U-B-L-E, right? Maybe you've heard of it. I smell trouble, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. You know what? Proverbs sings this song over those of us who are greedy, right? It brings trouble into our life. It brings relational trouble. Think about all of the marriages, all of the families that are torn apart because of the greed that is there. It brings financial trouble. We've talked about that. It can bring emotional trouble, certainly spiritual trouble into our lives. All sorts of T-R-O-U-B-L-E comes as a result of greed. And number three, those who are caught up in the grips of greed often find themselves lying. Notice the connection here. It's in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 is talking about false teachers, but notice the connection he makes between falsehood, speaking uh, non-truth, and greed. He says in verse 3, in their greed of these false teachers, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you how? With fabricated stories. So he's warning the church. There are people out there who are greedy and they just want their money and they're false teachers and they're going to exploit you by lying. But notice the connection between lying and greed. Greed can lead us to not tell the truth because we want more money. Maybe it leads us to kind of fudging a little bit on our taxes, not exactly telling the truth because we're greedy for every dollar. Maybe we lie on our resume just to earn a higher paycheck. Maybe we we kind of fudge a little bit about our hours that we work because we want the money without the work. Maybe we lie to a product that we're selling for our business or someone else. Maybe we lie to a client because we want the income. Maybe we lie about how much we give because we want other people to think that we really give a lot, but instead, greedily, we just want to keep the money. Maybe we lie about how much money is invested or where it's invested with our spouse or other family members because we don't want them to know. This is our little place. So we've seen the prognosis of greed. What what can come into our life? Loss and and trouble and even lying. I want to spend the remainder of our time with the fourth question. What is greed's prescription? How do we fight this sin? How do we overcome the inherent greed that is in our culture and often in our hearts? Well, I think we need a kind of a a two-pronged attack. We need contentment, and we need confidence. We, we fight the disease of greed with kind of two anti-greed pills, if you will. Contentment on the one hand, and confidence on the other. Let's, let's first of all examine how we can fight greed through pursuing the, the virtue of simply being content. This is difficult, isn't it? I don't know about you. Contentment as a concept, yeah, that's great. But when I think about actually being content in my own life with where I live and what I have and my level of income and and where where we're at, it's easy as a concept, but it's very hard to put into practice, in particular in our culture. One one, uh, commentator says this. He says, externally, we live within a culture that pressures us to accumulate more and more money, to have more and more experiences, to have more and more stuff. He says, affluence is also often considered the measure of success. And from childhood, we're encouraged to pursue the, quote, American dream. Advertisements incessantly barrage us with products and experiences that we, quote, need or we, quote, deserve. Add to this the subtle pressures of so- social media, 
social media, anyone? We're at the click of the mouse. We're invited to compare our cars, our homes, our, our vacations even with our friends or our family member, neighbors or maybe acquaintances or old classmates. Facebook, anyone? He continues to write, but these external pressures would have little pull without the internal desires of our hearts. Our hearts are never neutral, he says. They are spring-loaded with desire. We all know this truth. Like a needle to a magnet, our hearts move constantly towards more achievements, more possessions, more experiences. We think that they will make us happy. And so in this kind of external culture and with the internal reality of our heart, we look at Philippians chapter 4. So I hope that you're still there. We open to Philippians chapter 4 at the outset of the sermon, and let's, let's go there now. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, we see the words of the Apostle Paul as he speaks about his own experience. And I think he provides a clear pathway to pursuing contentment. And there I think we see three kind of key elements to contentment. Let's, let's read verse 11. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's speaking in the context of of a gift that the church in Philippi had sent to him. And he's thanking them for that gift, but he, he wants them to know that he's not after their money. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not simply thanking you because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So first of all, contentment in my life and in your life, we need to understand that it's non-circumstantial. What does that mean? It means it doesn't, it doesn't matter if things are great or if things are poor. It doesn't matter if we have a Lexus or if we have a beat-up Honda, right? It doesn't matter if there's tons in our bank account or if we're just struggling to, to make our, our, our monthly payments. It, he says it's not based upon the circumstance. He says, I have learned to be content regardless of those circumstances. We often think just the opposite, don't we? I mean, we often think, well, I will be content if I get that next job. If I get the next promotion, then I'll be happy. If I, if I get the next size up, if I get the bigger house, then I'll be happy. If I, get, if I just get a newer car, then I'll be happy, right? If I'm just in a, a better neighborhood, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. And we feed ourselves this lie that contentment is actually based on what we have. And it's not. It's non-circumstantial. But not only that, it's cultivated. This is good news, friends, for all of us. It's learned. Notice verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, Paul says. I have learned. I have learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. He's going to tell us what that secret is in just a bit. But notice the the repeated emphasis on he has learned this. He says it in verse 11, I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. He says again in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. And so friends, here's the good news. That if Paul, through his experiences of having lots and having little, if he had to learn to be content... If Paul, the super-Christian that we see in the Bible, it wasn't natural for him. It wasn't just like, yeah, I'm content, and it's just there. If it's something that he actually had to, to work on and cultivate, how much more for you and I? This is good news. He learned to be content through his experiences. He learned by being in a prison cell and being hungry what it was to be content with having little food. 
he learned what it was to be content when he was free, and he had the churches giving him all sorts of, uh, of money, and, and he had plenty of food, and he, he was living in, in a good spot. He, he learned then, even then, what it was to be content through experience. And friends, if Paul needed the experiences, the ups and the downs of life to be content, how much more so do we? It can be cultivated as we go through life, regardless of whether we are, to pursue contentment. And, and third, not only is it non-circumstantial, not only is it, is it learned, but it's Christ-empowered. Here's the secret. He says it in verse 13. Here's the secret to being content. I can do all of this. I can do all things, one translation says. I can do all of this through Him, speaking of Christ, who gives me strength. So here's the beauty of the Scriptures, right? It's Contentment is something that we actually learn, we work towards it, we face our experience, whether good or bad, and we pursue contentment, and yet it's not us inherently doing it. We work towards it, and yet it's Christ's power living in us, supernaturally producing contentment. It's a both and, right? And so contentment, it's not a matter of mere willpower. Today I'm going to be content. Tomorrow I'm going to be content. It's not a, a disposition. Well, you're content because of your personality, and I'm not. It's not a matter of that. It's not a matter of temperament. It's not a matter of kind of separating ourselves from the emotions of our experience. Well, I'm going to be content, even though this is really difficult. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of abiding in Christ, of pursuing a real living relationship with Jesus. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, he grows in us. As the pastor Martin Lloyd Jones wrote, he said, abiding in Christ is a tremendously active thing. And so, how do we fight greed? We pursue contentment, and Christ produces contentment in us, regardless of where we're at. And so, the vice is greed, but the virtue is contentment. And and not only contentment, but I want to close with this. We fight greed with, with confidence, by having confidence specifically in God's presence with us and His promise to help us all the time. Look at Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6. kind of brings it all together. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. So we've just seen that, right? So flee greed, okay? And be content with what you have. So flee greed and be content. That's what we've we've seen. Flee greed and and be content. But how? Why? Because, Paul's going to give us another reason. Because God has said... Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say with what? With confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So not only do we fight greed with with pursuing contentment, but we fight greed with this rock-solid confidence that regardless of how good things are or how bad things are, God's with us. He's there with us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And we can have confidence that he is our helper and we don't have to be afraid. Notice the, the connection here between greed and fear. Fear often drives us to greed. Not all the time, but often. Fear of not having our, our needs met. Fear of not having enough. Fear of being out of control. Because if we, th- we think if we have enough money, then certainly we'll be in control, right? Not true. Fear of not being secure. These things often drive us to greed. But what does Paul say? When we trust in God's presence, his promise to always be with us, we don't don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. It's like pouring water on the fire of the temptation of greed. Confidence of God's presence with us. So I want to close with a verse. 
of a hymn, of a little-known hymn. I had never heard of this hymn before. Maybe you have, but it's a little-known hymn. Its title is this. It's kind of an odd title. How Tedious and Tasteless the Hours. Wonderful name for a Christian song, right? Kind of odd. What? Tedious and Tasteless the Hours. That's an odd name. Yeah, it's actually a hymn, and it's written by a, a rather famous guy. Have you ever heard of the, the hymn writer by the name of John Newton before? You probably have because he wrote maybe the most famous hymn in all of Christianity called what? Amazing Grace, right? So he's written this little-known hymn called How Tedious and Tasteless the Hours. In this hymn, he speaks about having confidence in God's presence and being content with Jesus and how tedious and tasteless life is apart from Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3. We're going to end with these words. He says, Content with beholding his face, my all to his pleasure resigned. No change of season or place would make any change in my mind. While blessed with a, a sense of his love, a palace, a mere toy would appear, and prisons would be palaces, would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Let's pray, church.